Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as our Wednesday class because each Wednesday we get together here in order to do either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or chanting, learning how to develop a Buddhist chanting practice. And today is breathing mindfulness meditation. We're In our group learning program, where on Sundays we cover a chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, and then on Wednesday we do Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, Loving Kindness Meditation, or Developing a Buddhist Chanting Practice, and then on Saturdays we have a Pali Canon in English study group where we're using the actual words of the Buddha through a series of 13 books exploring his actual teachings in the English language. And it starts on the 9th of January, which is this Saturday. So I'd like to just make sure everyone's aware of this program. It's called The Words of the Buddha. That's what Buddha Wajana actually means, The Words of the Buddha, Pali Canon and English Study Group. And this is an opportunity for you to learn the teachings directly with the words of the Buddha, where we're going to be exploring the Pali Canon, which is the original source of his teachings, and English. And we're doing that through these live online classes, which will be shared on Saturdays at 9 p.m. Thai time. And wherever you are locally, you can tune in through Facebook, YouTube, or our Zoom classroom. There's also an audiobook that has about seven or eight of these that I've put on our YouTube channel and our podcast. So you have access to them there, but it's really best if you actually have the printed books. I have a, about seven of these in PDF format in our Facebook group that are able to be downloaded. But again, it's easier if you have the printed version because during the class, we're going to actually be opening right to a particular chapter and exploring the actual teachings directly in our class. So if you are not yet registered for this, I suggest that you do so by going to this registration link, which is bit.ly forward slash Pali Canon Study Group. And Pali is P-A-L-I Canon C-A-N-O-N Study Group. And if you go to that link, and if you can't find it for some reason, you're always welcome to go to our website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com. But if you go to this registration link for the Words of the Buddha Pali Canon and English Study Group, you'll see all the details and the schedule and how the program's laid out. There's some links there for you to register. There's no cost or anything like that. 
It's just a matter of registering for the program. And if you aren't able to support the purchase of the books, then that's fine because you can use the audiobook and the, the PDFs as much as possible. But if you end up finding a way to collect the funds and actually be able to support purchasing those, you'll see the links for those as well, where you can actually purchase the books right online. But either way, even if you don't have the books, you don't even have the PDF, you don't even have the audiobook, you just stumble into the class, everybody's welcome. There's no prerequisites, although it's helpful if you have already studied this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. But I never am interested in ever turning anybody away for any class. So if you have an interest in learning the Buddhist teachings, you're welcome to show up either in Zoom, Facebook, or our YouTube channel. And that's on Saturday at 9 o'clock Thai time with our group learning program, which is going to continue on Sunday and Wednesday. And we're actually got another probably four weeks of that left. And then we're going to be restarting it again in February. I've added a few extra classes that aren't advertised and that aren't on the schedule right now at the end of our current group learning program. On Sunday, which is our main day for all the teachings that we've been doing so far, those classes end on the 27th of January or thereabouts, right? Maybe right before that. But because we kind of have this little ability to kind of end the group learning program and then kind of insert some additional special classes before we get back into the group learning program, which would be going through this book. What I'm going to be doing is putting in and inserting some additional classes that I've never taught in this format on the group learning program online. So classes on just really exploring the four stages of enlightenment and exactly what those are and what it takes to move through those four stages. Discussing the 10 fetters in detail, specifically what are the 10 fetters and exactly how to eliminate them in your practice. What are the seven factors of enlightenment and exactly what are they? Because by the time we get to the end of January, beginning of February, I will have been teaching these classes for about one year online. And some of you who have been learning very closely, practicing very closely, both meditation as well as the entire Eightfold Path, you're probably seeing some pretty good progress and you may be getting closer and closer to the jhanas or uh, maybe even in the jhanas. And at this point, what I would like to do now that we're about a year into this is really hone in on the four stages of enlightenment and exactly what the 10 fetters are and the seven factors of enlightenment because there's people that are getting closer and closer to those and it's important that we actually start helping you to investigate those and practice them and learn how to really get rid of these 10 fetters so that you can experience more and more benefits in your practice. So we'll be inserting some additional classes that I haven't really shared with you guys yet, but just know that that's a heads up that they're going to be happening. And I will let you know when uh, we get a little bit closer what those classes are, but they're still going to be on our Sunday. So if you're tracking along and just planning to attend pretty much every Sunday, then you'll definitely be in those classes and getting these additional new classes and additional topics that we're adding into the schedule before we start the next iteration of the group learning program. 
And then because we have been meditating on Saturday quite a bit and doing kind of almost like an hour of meditation each Saturday as a group, on Saturdays, since we're going to be doing the uh, Pali Canon and English study group, we're going to be shortening our meditation to only about maybe 10 or 15 minutes on Saturday. But Wednesday is going to become our meditation day because that's when we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness, and developing our Buddhist chanting practice. So this day is going to be where we start really diving into meditation and coming together as a group and doing kind of longer sits of meditation. So I'd like to just kind of pause there and see if anybody has any questions on some of this administrative type stuff that I've been talking about before we go into our actual meditation in today's class. Max has a question. He'd like to know, will we be starting early on Saturdays? We're going to still be starting at nine because I think everybody's kind of got that set up now and it's kind of like, you know, it's it's not permanent, but it's, it's really in people's mind. I think that where I don't need to introduce any impermanence on class times, it kind of helps to keep people in the same groove and just kind of coming at the same time all the time. So I'm going to keep it at nine o'clock for all three days. But what we're going to do is we're just going to shave off some of that time to go right into meditation on Saturday. And then we'll see what the classes end up being. You know, I can talk about this stuff for the next 45 years, the rest of my life, but these classes, you know, they have to be a certain length of time. So if you guys end up choosing to talk about the Pali Canon for hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, up to you, but we'll see how the classes go. The very first class, the 9th of January, is really important to attend. And if you aren't going to attend it, be sure that you get the content from the class, either on our YouTube channel, in Facebook, or in the podcast, because I'm going to probably spend a good 30 minutes, 45 minutes, really helping you understand how to approach the teachings of Gautama Buddha. Because when you're reading his teachings, it's not casual reading, not that they're hard or not that they're difficult, but there's a certain way you need to approach these teachings. So I'm going to spend a good 30 or 45 minutes sharing that with you on the first day. So we won't have as much time on our first day to cover the actual teachings of the Buddha. But subsequently after that, we'll have from the time of ending our meditation for the whole rest of the class period to explore these teachings. And while I'm thinking about this, let me share with you that the way that I'm going to be doing this is I'm going to, of course, be live streaming and doing Zoom for the Saturday class. And that's going to be registered and recorded on YouTube and Facebook so you guys can watch that back. But because the group learning program is still going on for the podcast, I'm going to still be distributing the group learning program on the podcast all the way through the end of the special classes that I'm adding. And then once those are done, I'm going to then only be sharing the Pali Canon and English study group on the podcast because for me to edit three days worth of teaching in the podcast, I would be spending my whole week doing that. And now that we're ramping up the teaching and we're going to be teaching for three days, I'm not going to have the time to actually sit and edit three days worth of teaching. And because I've already taught the group learning program twice, there's already two recordings for every single chapter 
on the podcast. So if someone's looking at any of the chapters in developing a life practice, they have two different talks that they can access on the podcast. So once we commence with our third iteration of the group learning program, I'm not going to be publishing those talks on the podcast. They will still be in YouTube and Facebook, but they won't be on the podcast because I'm only going to be editing Saturday's Polly Cannon and English Study Group podcast and then publishing that to the podcast. So there's only going to be one podcast a week now. I may still do the meditation session. I haven't decided that yet, but it's probably going to be just the Polly Cannon and English Study Group because now not only am I teaching classes more, but I'm also teaching here in Chiang Mai more. And there's a lot more personal appointments where people are scheduling personal appointments with me. So these classes are going really well and people are getting what they need from the classes, the book, the recordings, all the different resources. And now people are starting to come in and spend a lot more time getting personal guidance, which is really helpful. So if I spend a whole lot of time editing podcasts, I won't have time for the personal guidance as much. So I'm kind of prioritizing that since we've already got a lot of good recordings of the group learning program on the podcast. Now it's just a matter of putting out the Polycan and English study group podcast, which will be all new content for the podcast. Okay. We have a question from Judith. Are the Buddha Wajana all the books that one has to study in Theravada Buddhism? I would say no. Uh, what these books are, and I'm going to explain this uh, on Saturday's class, is these are a curated version of the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon, I don't have the book next to me now. I used to have it over here. It's really, really thick. It's probably, you know, one volume of the Pali Canon is thickness wise about five of these books, thickness wise. And then it's a really, they're really big books. And there's 45 volumes of these books. It would probably take you 10 years, I would say, to probably read that. The person who did all the translations of the Pali Canon, it took him 27 years to translate the Pali Canon into English. So that tells you how exhaustive it is. If you just read through it, I feel it would probably take you 10 years to read all 45 volumes of books. So what this temple in Thailand has done, and Thailand is the only place that I know that has access to these books. You can't access them anywhere. Even the publisher in America who prints these books, when I've been making calls and contacting them, like nobody in the company knows about these books whatsoever. It's really an exclusive thing here in Thailand. But what this temple has done is they've gone through the 45 volumes of books that are the Pali Canon, and they've curated and extracted the most important teachings on all the given topics. Because the Buddha taught for 45 years and he didn't just sit down and teach for 45 years, beginning, middle and end. He had a lot of different conversations with a lot of different people at different times. So when all these things were written down, you've got teachings about, say, gamma, the natural law of gamma, scattered and sprinkled throughout 45 volumes of books. And again, it would take you 45 years to read this and there's really no structure to it. It's just here's what he taught in his 45 years of life. So someone reading through the Pali Canon, not only would it take them a long time, 
they would need the guidance. They wouldn't necessarily be able to put that stuff into practice right away. It would really be a, quite an endeavor to go through that. So the temple here in Thailand has done an enormous service to the Buddhist community. And it's really kind of a shame that the outside world doesn't have access to these books here in Thailand, because what they've done is they've gone through those 45 volumes of books and they've curated a book like this that can be read in about an hour and a half that is all on the topic of gamma, the natural law of gamma. So there's about 100 to 200 people on this team at the temple that have curated these 45 volumes of books, extracted exactly what they felt was important to learn about the natural law of gamma under the guidance and leadership of a really well-known abbot or a master monk that uh, resides and, and kind of runs that temple. So these books are almost like the cliff notes or a summarization or a the most potent teachings about individual topics. So each of these books have different theme to them and they've curated some teachings which are fairly short in some of them. Some of them are just a half a page long. And this is a much more digestible format because the Pali Canon, it's really all encompassing. I mean, when you read a sutra of the Buddhas, I mean, it can take you 30, 45 minutes to read just one teaching. And he's talking so profoundly, so clear, so concise, so profoundly that each sentence, it's like, whoa, I need to think about that. So it might take you 30 or 45 minutes to read one sutra in the Pali Canon, but in order to really digest it, I mean, it can take weeks or months to really digest one particular sutra. So what these people have done is they've really distilled it down at this temple here in Thailand to some teachings that are just really potent and really clear and really direct. So like this, this particular first book that we're going to read, which is called Following Dhamma's Trail. Chapter 14 is only two paragraphs. Those two paragraphs are all of about two or three sentences, okay? But it's extracted from this enormous sutra, and they've given it a title, This Spiritual Life is Not Lived for the Sake of Deceiving People. Right. Like just trying to look like you're practicing the Dhamma. You're so wonderful. You're a Buddhist practitioner. And now you just kind of go out on the world and try to deceive people that you're so wonderful and you're so great. Well, when you read this two or three sentences, it's just like, boom, it gives you like exactly the teachings you need about pride and arrogance and ego and not trying to be boastful and prideful about the fact that you're a Buddhist practitioner. And rather than you having to go through these 45 volumes of books and kind of stumbling upon this amongst a whole bunch of other teachings, this temple has really extracted it and just given it to you in a very short, digestible format that you can read, internalize, and then start to practice right away. So when I read these the first time, I took about four months to go through them. You could probably read them in probably like three days, four days, all of them. But that's not the way you want to approach the Buddhist teachings because it's not going to lead to liberation of the mind. But I'm going to explain that to you guys on Saturday. So these books are not everything that you would probably read, but this is like 
the best start that you could ever get in terms of the Buddhist teachings because it's a distilled, curated collection of his teachings. And the vast majority of the Buddhist world don't even have access to these. Even here in Thailand, when I go around and I meet monks and I meet other Buddhist practitioners and they say, hey, you know, what are you actually studying? What, what, what are the resources you use? And I, I tell them about these books and they've never heard of them. And then when they see them, they're like, oh my goodness, I've never seen a book that is just purely the words of Gautama Buddha. They've actually never seen them. And then once they get them, they're just so pleased that they have access to them. So this is a wonderful thing. It's, they're great books. I feel very pleased to be able to offer them to all of you guys. I feel very pleased to be able to guide you guys through learning and understanding these books. But it's still just a start, right? I kind of think of it that way. I would never tell you that's all you need, right? So here's the actual books. I would never say, no, that's all you need. Just read those. You don't, you don't need anything else, right? Because you don't know what your mind's going to absorb through this program. Everybody's a little bit different. And depending on what you read here, your mind's going to evolve to a certain degree, but there's always supplemental learning that will help you to evolve more and more all the time. And that's why I say that even someone who's attained enlightenment, where they no longer have any discontentedness, they should never consider themselves as enlightened because this path that you embark on over multiple years is a path to acquiring wisdom, more and more and more and more wisdom on this path to enlightenment, to awaken the mind and training the mind. Well, when you do this for several years and you awaken the mind and you truly get to the point where you know you're enlightened because you no longer experience discontentedness, but you don't want to convince yourself of that because then the mind has a tendency to become complacent or lazy or lackadaisical. But you've progressed so much in this path and you're practicing so well by the time you eliminate discontentedness in pursuing wisdom that you never really consider I'm done or that's enough. That's all I'll need. You think about, okay, what's next? What's next? Like I'm interested without craving, without desire, right? Without attachment, not with this longing and strong eagerness, but okay, like once you know that you've eliminated discontentedness and you've been on this path of pursuing wisdom for so many years, you're not going to just stop pursuing wisdom, whether it's in the Buddhist teachings or whether it's in some other aspect of your life. You're going to always be pursuing wisdom because by that time, the mind is so well-trained and so well-versed and you've eliminated all this pursuit of craving, desire, attachment. You've eliminated all this hatred, anger, ill will. You've eliminated all this delusion, ignorance, unknowing of true reality. Like you actually get a lot more time in your life because you're no longer struggling with all these little tiny problems that seem so big when you're unenlightened. You're able to deal with things in a very expeditious way and the mind is functioning so optimally and you've got such profound memory that you can really pursue any path or any career or any charitable activity and really excel at it and be successful at it. So you'll always be pursuing wisdom, I have a feeling, but you just won't do it with craving, desire, attachment, and you'll be able to approach anything and any topic that you feel would be in your best interest. 
And it's a wonderful place to be because you know that no matter what you decide to embark on, you're going to be successful. By the time you've attained enlightenment, all fears eliminated. You understand the natural laws of existence very, very well. There's nothing that's going to stand in your way of accomplishing whatever goals you set out to accomplish. So this is why someone like the Buddha, he awakened his mind. He knew he awakened the mind. He knew he was enlightened, but he didn't boast. He wasn't egotistical. He wasn't prideful or arrogant, but he knew it was his role. It was his job to share these teachings with the world. And he did what he had to do during those 45 years. And look what it has amounted to in 2,500 years. Here we are still talking about this man, this fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And as I've said in a previous class, I can't name one person from 2,500 years ago or even around that time that we talk more about. Maybe it's the Buddha and like Jesus and maybe like Prophet Muhammad, right? These are like the three people who are still on the tips of tongues of most people. But in terms of other people, we don't really have anyone. And this man who awoke in his mind, Gautama Buddha, he had no fear. He knew that he was going to be successful in what he needed to do. And he just calmly, patiently, methodically, with loving kindness and compassion, delivered these teachings in a way that could help the people during his lifetime to attain enlightenment and left the teachings in a way that after he died, they would be available for people. So there's nothing that you won't be able to accomplish as you progress closer and closer to this goal. And this may be all you ever choose to dive into, but it may not be. You may decide to go beyond that. But as a teacher, I would never say, yeah, that's all you need. Just just get those. That's it. You'll be done. As a good teacher, I would like to encourage and motivate and support you and say, oh, no, you need to you need to keep going. You need to keep learning. You need to always be looking for more knowledge and more wisdom. That's my way of encouraging and supporting you and motivating you along this path. Thanks, David. We have a question from Max. He asks, do these books include teachings from the Dhammapada? No, they do not. There's a difference here. The Pali Canon, we refer to it as the Pali Canon. There's actually different sections of the Pali Canon. It's not just one Pali Canon. And while we're talking about it, there's not just one Pali Canon. There's actually different sources of Pali Canon. In people's minds, they think that there's just the Pali Canon and that's it. And everybody should have exactly the same teachings. But what we really actually have in the world is we have many sources of the Pali Canon And then we have many translations from various translators. We have multiple translations from different translators of the different sources. And then out of those multiple translations, we have multiple teachers like me that have their different interpretations and different views and different perspectives of what these translations really mean. So this is why you can study with one teacher who might say one thing and you study with another teacher who might say something slightly different. But the way that you know the truth is that you should be able to independently discover what is the truth by learning and practicing that teaching, seeing how it affects your mind. If the condition of your mind is improving, then you know you're learning the truth and what the teacher taught is really the truth. 
But if what you learn and practice isn't improving the condition of the mind, and you know that's not the truth, it's not actually improving the condition of the mind. So we've got all these different teachers with all these different accesses to different resources. And that's why I say these resources are not widely known in the world. They're very exclusive to here in Thailand and to the English-speaking community here in Thailand because they're in English. So we've got these different books, and this Pali Canon essentially has three different sections in it. And one of the things that people look at is what's called the Dhammapada. The difference between what I refer to as the Pali Canon and what people refer to as the Dhammapada, which people do consider the Dhammapada part of the Pali Canon, what the Dhammapada is, is it's a scholarly work that scholars put together long after the Buddha's death. So when the Buddha lived, he taught orally. Then nothing was written down during that time. When he died, they started to assemble all the arahants, all the enlightened people. And they started to get together and be like, well, what did you hear the Buddha say? What did you hear the Buddha say? Like, you're enlightened. Like, what led to your enlightenment? What led to your enlightenment? And everybody kind of got together and started kind of collecting the various teachings that they remembered orally. And then about two or 300 years after his death, as more and more people were becoming enlightened through this oral tradition, they decided to actually write down the teachings in a canon or in a text. And that kind of is what served the Buddhist community for a very long time, this oral tradition and these written texts. But then later, I'm not actually sure how long it was, but I think it was a good 800 to 1,000 years later, it might be something around 500 years after his death, scholars got together and they started to look at the written text and they started talking to the people in the oral tradition and they tried to summarize the Buddhist teachings. They weren't practitioners. This is one of the things you need to understand about scholars. Scholars are really good at looking at historical aspects of things, looking at you know where things traveled, the historical significance of teachings moving in and out of different regions of land and culture. But scholars typically are not practitioners. The way that you gain wisdom in this tradition is you learn the teachings either orally or through a text, but then you have to put it into practice in order to get the real deep, profound wisdom. So when you look at the Dhammapada, and this is where most of what you see in quotes floating around the internet is coming from the Dhammapada. What you're looking at is you're looking at a non-practitioner, essentially. A bunch of scholars got together and they looked at the text, they looked at the oral tradition, and they tried to kind of summarize what it is that the Buddha was actually teaching. So it's like a source of a source of a source that is not practicing and now trying to summarize his teachings. So there's certain people in the Theravada Buddhist community that don't consider the Dhammapada actually the Buddhist teachings. I'm one of those people. I have looked at the Dhammapada briefly, and when I see it, it's not the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha actually talks about, during his lifetime, he talks about this period of time where scholars are going to be very scholarly and try to talk about his teachings and his work. And he even warns in his teachings, you're going to see it in here, he actually warns in his teachings about people who try to summarize his teachings and people who try to 
teach poetically and they use poetry in order to try to describe the teachings that lead to enlightenment. Well, if you look at the Dhammapada, it's very much like poetry in a lot of ways because it's summarizing the teachings. And when I've read certain aspects of the Dhammapada, it actually is a little bit misleading. This summarization of his teachings in some cases conflict with the actual true teachings in the sutras. So the sutras is what we're going to be studying, not the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is the scholarly summarization of the Buddhist teachings. What we're going to read is the true sutras, which is the Buddha speaking, saying, you know, let me find a good one. So saying bhikkhus, so proclaiming, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some recluses in Brahmin. So these are like some people that are like misrepresenting the Buddhist teachings somewhere in his area. And he's kind of setting the record straight. He's telling them like, hey, look, I'm being essentially slandered for the teachings that people are misrepresenting my teachings. So it's like these teachings are the Buddha actually speaking. And that's what makes them so profound and so clear, so concise, so potent in your practice versus this you know, summarization that happened by scholars, you know, 500 to 1,000 years later after his death, who aren't even really truly practicing the teachings. So that's why I don't consider them the Buddhist teachings because they're a summarization, they're a scholarly work. When I've looked at them, they're actually in direct conflict with the sutras. And the Buddha talks about that too. He says, if you ever learn any teachings that are directly in conflict with the sutras, you should ignore them and disregard them, right? And consider them to be misunderstanding what the true sutras are. So there's a core population of people here in Thailand, and I don't know about other countries, I'm sure they're in other countries too, that feel like the Dhammapada is not the Buddhist teachings. But if you look in Western circles and you look in the Western world, the vast majority of people look to the Dhammapada as the end-all be-all source of the Buddhist teachings because it's poetry, because it's summarized. It's not really as perplexing and challenging to read as the sutras. The sutras, while they're clear, concise, and profound, you really got to wrap your mind around it. And that's why I'm going to spend some time talking to you about this. And that's why I'm talking about it now is I'm going to spend some time talking to you about it on Saturday is how to really approach these teachings because you got to wrap your mind around it because they're very perplexing where the Dhammapada is more like poetry. So in the Western world, this is what people tend to rely on. And this is one of the reasons why we don't have massive numbers of enlightened beings in the Western world and the Western culture. So what I'm doing is I'm rooting your education, your learning, your practice in the actual true words of the Buddha rather than this summarization or scholarly work by other people that aren't even really truly practicing the teachings to really get that deep wisdom. Lori would like to know, how long does it take to get the books? It used to take quite a while, but now my wife helped me find a shipping service that gets them to people in about three or four or five days. So if this is Lori who just ordered a version last night, I think it was, or, or two nights ago, I just shipped yours off today. So you'll probably get them, let's see, today's Wednesday. 
you might get it by Friday or you might get it at the beginning of next week where you're in Georgia, I think I remember. So normally Georgia would have taken me six to eight weeks to get books there because the way I was shipping them before, which is a lot slower, but now they should be coming to you within just a few days. So if anybody's interested in getting these, I still have about three sets here and I can get some more pretty readily. I think I've probably sent out a good 30 or 40 of these over the weeks. And there's a bunch of people who also have been donating to efforts that I have here. And the way that I've set this up is if you're donating at the $25 level per month, I actually send you a set of these for free. And normally I do that once you get to the one year mark, but I haven't done that with anybody, every single person, like as soon as I sign up in the first month or two, I'm like, yeah, I know that, you know, I say publicly in on the website of donations that these should be coming in a year, but I know that this program was coming. So I've sent out a bunch of these for free because people are donating a $25 a month, which works out to $300 a year. Uh, but these books are actually cost $150, $149 to get these to you. So if any of you are interested in just doing the donation, you can do that for $25 or you can just purchase them if you'd like to purchase them and you can do it that way. So to me, I wish I could give these out for free, but the temple has to be paid because they're the ones who are printing these. And the way that everybody works is we don't make profit on these books. What we do is we put a whole lot of time, effort and energy into developing these things. And then whatever it costs to print them, we print them and then we put just a little bit extra in there that people are paying. And then that little extra money, we use it to continue the propagation of the teachings. So any kind of money that is additional above and beyond the cost of the books, that is like a donation to help us to continue to propagate these teachings into the world. And that's one of the ways that we do that is through donations, but also through having books like this available and then just adding a little bit of extra. The vast majority of that $150 is through shipping. It costs a good 60 or $80 to ship these internationally. So that's the vast majority of what that cost is. Then there's a little bit of money in there that I use for propagating the teachings. And then there's the actual money to the temple and the printer for actually printing these. So that's where the price gets to $149. But because I can give you these for free, when people are making donations, I have it set up that way that anyone who's donating at the $25 mark per month or more, I just give you a set for free. On the topic of shipping, Marcia would like to know how long the books may take to get to South Africa. South Africa? I'm not sure. I've never sent one to South Africa, but even if it took, you know, three, four, five days and say you didn't have this for the first Saturday, it's okay because you'll have it for the next Saturday or, or the one right after that. So it's not that you have to have to have to have to have these by just this one Saturday, right? That would be like craving desire attachment. So if you know you would like to get a set of these, you know, I'll get them out as soon as possible. And then if you don't have it for the first Saturday, that's okay. You'll still have the book and you'll still be able to learn and you'll still have the recordings and you'll be able to go back and go through it. But it won't take very long because my wife used the same shipper 
to ship to France. And it took two days for them to get something to France. And this was like right now in COVID time. And everything's kind of slowed down because of COVID. There's not as many planes running around the earth. So when we looked at it, like I had to look at it three times. I was like, my goodness, like two days to France from Thailand. Like that's unheard of, especially at the prices that they're offering now. So we've been able to find a really good shipper and they come by FedEx or UPS or uh, this company called Fast Ship. They're um, doing a wonderful job shipping these out. I've shipped out three in the last uh, two days. And my wife has been using it for her shipping as well. She has different things that she ships. So if, if you would like a version, go to this website, buddhadailywisdom.com, and then click on online learning. And at the very bottom of there, you'll see the link to get a set of these books. I cannot recommend these more highly. And they're absolutely wonderful books and very much interested in sharing them with you guys. Thanks, David. It's great to hear about this new learning program you're offering. That's all the questions we have for now then. Okay, so let's go to our meditation then. Today, we're gonna do breathing mindfulness meditation as a group. And I think that was a good, must needed talk. It looks like we've been talking for about 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. So we must have needed to have that little bit of talk and sharing that little bit of stuff. So at this point, I would like to just invite you guys to pull up a cushion, pull up some pillows or a chair or lay on the floor, whatever position you take, either seated, standing or lying. And let's go ahead and, and do some meditation. So I'm in a chair because I'm sitting at a desk in order to do the live streaming and record all the podcasts and everything. But wherever you are, whether you're at home or at a friend's house or somewhere in the woods in a cabin, uh, which sounds really nice right now, uh, or if you're on top of a skyscraper somewhere, the beauty about developing your practice as the body, the mind, and the breath is you can meditate anywhere. We don't need candles, we don't need gongs, we don't need music, we don't need all of this stuff. We just need the body, the mind, and the breath. So pull up a chair or a cushion or whatever, or just sit right on the floor uh, if that's what you're doing, or just lay on the floor. And uh, get your lower body comfortable and get your upper body nice and erect so that your muscles are engaged. This is gonna keep the mind active and attentive and alert. And bring your hands in front of you with either your right hand on top of your left and your thumbs together, or your palms perhaps on your thighs or your knees or on the armrests of the chair, or maybe your palms are up. There's no one specific way to do this because of impermanence. You just need to find a comfortable place for the body to reside because the body doesn't really matter. We just want it to be comfortable, but not luxurious. Because our real goal is to get into the mind, get access to the boss. That's the boss. And we've got to go through this employee, this body, to get to the boss. So we got to make this employee kind of feel comfortable and relaxed so we can get to the boss. You should just close your eyes now and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just start to take some nice steady breaths in through the nose 
and out through the nose. You're not interested in forcing the breath or controlling the breath. You're just interested in establishing it, a nice natural pattern. It may be short, it may be long, that's okay. You're just breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Start bringing your awareness of mind to the breath. You should be fixating the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of the air entering the nose over the skin. This breath is the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. Stay here with the breath, focusing only on the sound of the breath, or the sensation of the air coming in the nose. I'm gonna do some chanting just to ease us into meditation and then come back with some more guidance.
ಪ್ರೀತಿಪೀಸೋ Focus the mind on the breath, the sound or sensation of air coming into the nose. This is the present moment. The mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it's in the present moment. Breathing in. stay in the present moment, it wants to wander into the past. This is why it worries. It's why it feels stress, sadness, anger, happiness, excitement, boredom, loneliness. And it also wants to go to the future. This is why it's having discontentedness, can't stay in the middle. So when the mind wanders, cut it off, let it go. Don't allow the mind to pull you with craving, desire, attachment towards the past or future. Wherever you notice it, cut it off, let it go, and focus on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. and out. 
if you notice the mind is having ideas, thoughts, or perceptions, don't try to label them. Don't try to figure out where they're coming from. Don't judge them. Just let them go. Cut them off and bring the mind to the breath, the present moment. The mind can be peaceful here. The present moment is the mind's refuge. It's protected, it's safe. It's safe from discontentedness in the present moment. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. And out. As the mind wanders, and you're aware of that, and you cut it off and bring it to the breath, the present moment, no need to feel guilty or shameful. You did nothing wrong. It's just this unenlightened mind that is not yet fully trained. But you're going to be training it and it's gradually going to get better breathing in and out breathing in and out mind's going to want to hold on, even hold on to this voice that's guiding you right now. This voice is impermanent. It won't last forever. So I'm going to be quiet, but you just focus on the breath, going internal to find that peaceful middle. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. and out.
come out of meditation just kind of gradually ease yourself out opening your eyes slowly I have something that I thought I would talk with you guys about related to the Buddhist teachings that you'll see in these books but you're not going to see it for probably about another four, five, six months and the particular teaching that he's talking about, I think, is very applicable to right now and where we are. Because of it just turning a new year, oftentimes there's a lot of new decisions that we make in the new year. And one of the most important decisions that we make and one of the most consequential decisions that we make is where do we live? Where do we reside? This decision by itself 
is one of the most consequential decisions that we will make because where you live determines a whole lot of things about your life in terms of food and water, clothing, shelter, medical supplies, the community and the type of people that are around you and what you're going to be participating in on a given day or what's your life going to be like? What's the weather going to be like? What's the uh, nutrients and what's the way to nourish the body and also the mind as well? So now that we've moved into a new year, there's people that will make decisions about where should I live? Is this a good time for me to leave? And I've even had a couple of recent students in personal discussions that have are contemplating some kind of major decisions right now that it's the beginning of the new year. And this decision about where we live is probably the most consequential and most important decision that we make, but we oftentimes don't put much thought into it. We might live near our parents or we might just live where we grew up and just kind of stay in that area. We might just on a whim go somewhere and decide to give it a try and see what it's like over there. But the Buddha actually provides us guidance of exactly the type of places that we should be looking for and also the type of places we should avoid in terms of where we should live. He doesn't tell you exactly. That's not the way the Buddha taught. He gave you guidance and then you figure it out from there. So I'd like to share that guidance with you about what the Buddha taught about how we should select a place to live and help you understand his teachings along this line. He essentially gave four different depictions or four different scenarios and kind of gave description of these four scenarios and explained you know how you should consider these places the first scenario that he talks about is he says if you find a place or you're living in a place that it's really hard to get the basic needs met to sustain your life food water clothing shelter medical supplies if you are in a place that it's really really hard to get those basic necessities met and it's a place that is very difficult to develop your mind and cultivate your consciousness on this path to enlightenment he says you should leave that place at once like pretty much immediately you should leave that place it's not providing you anything beneficial right it's very difficult to sustain your life the five basic needs aren't there and you're not able to develop your consciousness. You should leave that place immediately. The second scenario, he says, if it's a place where you are able to get the basic needs of your life met, meaning food, water, shelter, medical supplies, but you're not able to develop your mind, it's not a very good place to cultivate your consciousness. He said, you should leave that place at the next available moment essentially like the next night or the next night or the next night, right? Because, yeah, it's sustaining your life. You're able to sustain this human body, but you're not cultivating your consciousness. Maybe it's a harsh environment. Maybe it's abusive environment. Maybe it's a, a place where people are aggressive and hostile and, you know, lots of problems in the community. It's really difficult to cultivate your consciousness in that environment. He says you should leave it 
at the next possible moment. Then the third scenario that he provides is he says, if you're living in a place where the food or the basic necessities are hard to come by, but you're able to cultivate your consciousness. He says, this is a place you can stay at for a while and you should consider you know, staying there for a while, but not long-term essentially, right? Because it's kind of difficult to sustain your life. You know, you're, you're able to get some of the basic needs, but it's a little bit struggling, but you're able to cultivate your consciousness. And that's kind of like the real goal in this path to enlightenment. So he says, this is a place you can stay at for a while, right? This is the third scenario. The fourth scenario, the final scenario, is he says, if you're at a place where all your basic needs are met, your life-sustaining needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, medical supplies, all those things are met and easy to come by, and you're able to cultivate your consciousness readily, and you're able to develop your consciousness. He says, this is the ideal place to stay and to stay long-term, right? Because you're easily able to get all your life-sustaining needs met, and you're able to cultivate your consciousness. And when you find that place, that's like the ideal perfect place for you to be. I didn't know this teaching until about two, two and a half years ago. But once I discovered this teaching, I realized that that's essentially what I found here in Chiang Mai. The basic needs to sustain my life, food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies, very easy to come by. Foods, very inexpensive, very tasty too. Clothing, very inexpensive. You know, everything's very easy, just jump on the motorbike and I'm at a market in like three minutes with a plethora of food, right? Good, wholesome food, fruits and vegetables and lots of spices and herbs, right? Very easy to get food. And it's a place where here in Chiang Mai that people are very well practicing the Buddhist teachings. So you can see the Buddhist teachings everywhere. You see the generosity, you see the loving kindness, you see the compassion, you see the gratitude and appreciation and respect, you see the politeness, the kindness and the friendliness. I'm sure there's other places in the world that are like this too, but without knowing this teaching of the Buddha, I selected a place like this and before I ever moved here permanently or for the rest of this life, I knew that this was the place I was going to die. I will die in Chiang Mai. I have no interest to ever live or call anywhere else home because all the basic needs of sustaining life are readily available. I can live off of just a meager existence, just very little money, very little donations to sustain my life. And I also have the ability to practice the teachings amongst a large community of people that are practicing the teachings very well. This is the ideal place for me, but it might not be the ideal place for you. So you can use this guidance of the Buddhas in order to guide your decisions about where is the best place for you to live. And if you're in one of those other three scenarios, then just kind of look for this fourth scenario and look for that one and gradually work in that direction. 
don't become discontent if you're if you're in scenario one two or three but just know that this isn't the ideal place for you that ideally you would like to get to scenario four and also notice that in this teaching the buddha really prioritizes the development of the mind because if the food is hard to come by and the development of the mind isn't there leave this place immediately if the food's easy to come by and the, you can't develop the mind, leave at your next available option. If the food is hard to come by and the mind is easy to cultivate and develop, yeah, you can stay here for a while. This place, you know, kind of supports you. And this is kind of the whole goal is to cultivate this mind. So, yeah, you know, you can stay there for a while and, and you know, make it make it home. But you should always be on the lookout for that option number four, that fourth scenario where food and life-sustaining supplies are easy to come by and you're able to cultivate the consciousness very, very well. So I provide this for you now at this point in time at the beginning of a year where you might be kind of looking over the new year or you might be looking back over the past year, which is fine, right? We try to keep the mind in the present moment and the closer you get to the enlightened mind, you'll be able to stay in the present moment. But there's nothing wrong with looking back over your year and saying what went well, what didn't go well. What things would I like to improve and what things should I uh, continue to do? And now let me kind of make some adjustments in this year in order to improve the situation in my life. This isn't allowing the mind to dwell in any of those particular places when you're having a conversation. The mind's not wandering to those places, the past and the future. The mind is consciously reflecting on the past and what you've actually experienced over the past year. And you're looking forward to the next year. You're saying, what would I like to accomplish this year? And let me make some good, wholesome decisions to set myself up in a way that allows me to progress in this life and progress to this goal of enlightenment. Because that's what the Buddhist teachings are all about is, guiding you in how to set up this life for yourself where you can cultivate the consciousness and get to enlightenment. And this teaching right here, it's very short. It's very succinct. You're going to get to it probably in about four, five, six months in these teachings. But I think now is just an opportune time to talk about it. So I thought I would share this with you. And if you guys have any questions on it, whether you're in Facebook or YouTube or Zoom, you can type those in and James, our moderator, will get those asked. But hopefully this is something that can help you as you look towards how to set up your life for this coming year. And if you have any ideas or thoughts about shifting where you live, be sure you put some real thought behind that because it's a very consequential decision about where you live. Because had I not decided to live here in Chiang Mai, I don't know that I would have ever gotten into what it is that I'm doing right now. I don't know that I would have ever had the results that I've had right now. This decision to move and live in Chiang Mai was one of the most consequential decisions that I ever made, which there's a whole lot of other reasons why it's important for me to live here, but these are just some of them. So I'd like to invite you guys to ask either questions about this or meditation or anything at all on the path to enlightenment. Thanks for sharing that, David. That's incredibly timely for me and I'm sure many others right now.
you're thinking of moving too, right, James? Or is it coming up for you? Absolutely. I'm actually moving out of my apartment right now as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) You've already made the decision of where you're going, though, I imagine. Well, it's been up in the air, so it's it's very nice to hear this from me as I consider this going forward. It's it's a lot to consider. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I'm glad it was helpful for you. We have a question from Max, and he would like to ask live. Okay. Thank you, James. So, David, you have often reminded me that where we are is the ideal place to practice. I think that applies to hopefully most of the people on this call, in this Zoom, and possibly many of those in Facebook, although surely not all of them. But uh, most of us have it pretty good in terms of human history right now, in terms of our ability to get food and medical care and shelter. What do you think the Buddha meant exactly when he was talking about the ideal environment for cultivating the mind and what wouldn't constitute as an ideal environment? Yeah, so of course his teachings are mostly addressing the bhikkhus that he's referring to. And these ordained practitioners, they enter into homelessness and they wander around the world without a home and they essentially live off the support of the local lay people or the household practitioners. So if they're in a place where household practitioners aren't providing them subsidence to sustain their life, they need to kind of go because they're not going to be able to, based on their precepts, they're not going to be able to grow food and go to the supermarket and buy food and cook food and all this stuff. So that's why the Buddha says, if you can't get food, like leave like right away at your, you know, immediately. But I think this also applies to us too, if, if we have that ability, even though this is mainly a teaching for the ordained practitioners, because it's in the book for the monks, that one of these books is all about teachings. Here it is right here. Um, It's called Lowly Arts. This one is all about teachings for the monks, but there's actually teachings in here that are beneficial for us as well. And the real teachings for the monks are much larger than this, but this is just a curated version of it. But I think there's some wisdom in this teaching for us, too, because, yeah, if we're not able to sustain our life off of the community that we're in, then we need to kind of pull stakes and get out of there as well. And if we're not able to cultivate our mind, yeah, we need to kind of pull stakes and get out of there as well. So, you know, obviously we understand the food subsidence, you know, that one's an easy one for us to understand. But in terms of cultivating your mind, you should look for places that are conducive to Buddhist practices. And what I mean by conducive to Buddhist practices are places where you see generosity, loving kindness, compassion, places where you see people that are practicing the five precepts, right? Where there's not killing, where there's not stealing, there's not sexual misconduct, there's not lying and false speech, there's not substances that cause heedlessness. You know, there's some communities in the world where there's just a lot, a lot, a lot of drugs and alcohol, for example. And that wouldn't be the ideal place for you because there's going to be people who are heedless walking around. There's going to be trash on the streets. There's going to be people who aren't really into good, wholesome things. And if they're into substances that cause heedlessness, they're going to be into lying and sexual misconduct and stealing and killing. And this is an environment that's going to be very tough for somebody to learn and practice the teachings and cultivate this mind that needs to be cultivated in order to attain enlightenment. 
So you should be looking for a place that you can kind of see that is very wholesome and that is practicing more of these teachings. And even though it might not be a Buddhist community, there are communities in the Western world that are practicing these teachings. And if you know these teachings well, you can look and you can see because Jesus taught a lot of this same stuff and Prophet Muhammad as well. So Max, I don't know if you mind if I use you as an example. You're okay? Sure. Okay. So like Max lives in a city that's somewhat of a party town, right? We can say that. Somewhat of a party town. And he moved there at a time when he was a partier, right? And, you know, there's a lot of things that go on there that now he's gotten to the point where he's like, you know, I'm not really interested in in doing these kind of things anymore. But he's still got to work his way out of that decision that he made however many years ago to live in that party town. This is his gamma to be in this party town. But when he goes to his mom's house, it's a completely different world, right? I mean, it's like a garden community. People are into horticulture and gardening and planting. And I bet the the land is really well kept. The grass is probably beautiful. Um, the sun shines a little bit brighter in that city probably than other, <laughs> other cities, right? So even if it's not a Buddhist community, which I don't think your mom's community is, although there was a Vahara right down the street, I think, from her. It's not really considered a Buddhist community, but these people are into good, wholesome things because they're into health and wellness and they're into taking care of the land and taking care of plants and taking care of each other and cultivating the land. And if they're interested in cultivating the land, then they're probably interested in cultivating the mind as well. So you can find places like this And you can usually drive around and you get a little bit of a feeling and you can kind of see how things are. And you're not judging, right? We're not judging like, oh, there's trash on the street. So therefore, it's not a good place to live. We're not doing that. But if there's people like if there's a party town and there's a lot of partying there and there's a lot of unwholesome things going on, then that means that everybody in that town is kind of being affected by that. So the leaders of that town, the the city um, services of that town, the different ability to access resources and get the help that you need, those kind of things are gonna be harder and harder to come by and you're gonna be interacting with people in various situations, either social situations or business situations or otherwise school situations where it's gonna be hard for you to see these teachings clearly and to kind of be part of a supportive community to actually practice these teachings. Because remember the triple gem, right? The triple jewel. What did the Buddha teach that's important in order to attain enlightenment? The triple jewel, the triple gem. Confidence in the Buddha that he was actually enlightened and that he actually can guide you there. So, Or, or in this case, confidence in your teacher as well. That translates not just to Gautama Buddha, but you need to have confidence that I can guide you in the teachings. You've got to have access to the teachings, right? You got to have books and resources and podcasts and videos and things like this. You have to have access to the teachings. But that third one, that third one, you've got to be part of a community of practitioners. And because you guys are kind of like trailblazers in a sense, you guys are some of the first people in the Western community that's learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, you're not going to have, you know, Buddhist community like I have here in Chiang Mai, 
or in Thailand, which is 95% Buddhist. But you're going to have communities where people are loving and kind and compassionate and, uh, you know, they practice equanimity or they have generosity. And you'll be able to see that in the various charitable activities. You'll be able to see that in interacting with people in the community. And we're not judging a community based on appearance. What we're doing is we're making wise decisions based on our interactions in the community and seeing how this community is set up. This is discernment, wise decision-making, versus judgment, which is looking down on people or looking up to people, right? This kind of ego wants to be either arrogant or it wants to be inferior to people, right? So we're not going to judge the community as good or bad and look down on it or anything like this, but we're going to use wise decision-making to ensure that this is a good community that we would like to be part of. So for me, when I moved here in 2015, this was preceded by 13-year relationship with Thailand, right? I didn't just click the fingers and jump to move to Thailand. And even before I was around Thai people, I was around a lot of Asian people from Indonesia and the Philippines and Vietnam and Korea and China and all these uh, Miramar and all these different places. So I had been around Asian people since I was 17 years old, almost exclusively, not because I chose, well, I did choose to do that, but it wasn't like discriminatory thing. But looking back, I just happened to be around all Asian people. I didn't see them as these are Asian people, these are African-Americans, and these are Caucasians, and I'm going to plant myself in a given community. I just saw everyone as a human being. But now looking back, yeah, like I was around all Asian people pretty much since the age of 17. So from 2002 in December until 2015, when I eventually moved here for the rest of this life, I was coming to Thailand regularly. And there was a period of time there where I was here about three months out of the year over two or three, four trips. So I'd come for two weeks, go back, come for four weeks, go back, come for three weeks, go back, these kind of things. And what I was doing in America is I had two Thai massage spas in a Thai massage school. Half of my employees were Thai. So I created this very Thai-like environment, even in America. So when I was in Thailand, I really soaked up a lot of Thailand. And when I was in America, I still had Thailand around me pretty much living in this world of Thai culture and Buddhist teachings. Uh, I didn't ever participate in the Dhamma talks at the temples in, or in America. I sat there, but I didn't know what they were saying because they were speaking in Thai. But I would go to the temples and I would observe what's going on and I would look around. So by the time I moved here in 2015, I had visited about 200 different temples across the world. And I would go in and out of these temples, but there was nobody there to teach me because everybody spoke Thai and I didn't speak Thai. You know, what, what oftentimes happened is the Thai women who had American husbands would see me there practicing and doing chanting and doing my meditation. And I would be interacting with the monks and they would ask me to teach their husband a little bit about Buddhism. So that was part of how I got teaching is like teaching people at the request of Thai people who would bring me their 
spouses or their life partner. And then, of course, teaching at my school, teaching Thai massage, I also taught Thai culture and Thai Buddhism or, or Buddhism at that school as well. As part of this whole package of learning Thai massage, people were learning Thai culture and Buddhism as well. But for me to move here in 2015, it was this long-term relationship of getting acquainted with this place called Thailand. And every time I came here, I always had nothing but good experiences. And all of my experiences in America with Thai people were nothing but good experiences, all the different places I ever went. Sure, there was a challenge here or there with a Thai employee and misunderstandings and you know, I was learning the culture and they were learning America and, you know, there were challenges here and there, but on a whole, what I saw were qualities of people that, and a quality of a place to live that I was really interested in, you know, easy access to food and lots of great, wonderful food, low cost, lots of great people that I could interact with. Uh, It's a small little city, which I've never lived in a small little city like this, a small little town. In America, I lived in the Washington DC area. So It was like Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, lots and lots of millions of people, power, money, wealth, right? Politics. Here in Chiang Mai, it's completely the opposite. It's it's laid back. It's it's uh, very down home. It's everybody knows each other, you know, kind of thing. It's like you go out and you see somebody like today. There was an old man that stopped and talked to me in the post office and, you know, why him and. We refer to him as uncle. So my son was with me, so I refer to him as uncle. Or if my son wasn't with me, I would refer to him as big brother. So even though this stranger that I've never met, he just stopped and we started talking and chatting and he saw me wearing all white and he was wearing kind of like almost all white. And I could tell that he meditates a lot just by him walking past me because he shot me this real big smile. He was wearing a mask, but I could tell it was an enormous smile because even though his whole half of his face was was covered up his whole face lit up and he started asking me like do you meditate you know what do you do you know we kind of talked a little bit and uh this man was very 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 peaceful and had a long white beard and long stringy hair and um just you know a two minute three minute conversation it was just wonderful talking to him And those are the kind of things that happen here in Thailand and in Chiang Mai is we refer to people as our uncle or our aunt or our mother or father. At the other post office I go to, there's an old man and woman there. I call them mom and dad when I go in there. How you doing, mom and dad? How you doing today, right? This is the way it is here in Thailand. And the more you understand that, you can bring this into your your culture. I'm not telling you to go to your post office and start calling people a mom and dad. That would probably be too big of a jump, right? We have to gradually train the world to understand this uh, Buddhist teachings and that we're all related, right? But there's things about Thailand that you can certainly bring back, the respect and the gratitude and appreciation and generosity. And this is what I did over 13 years before I ever moved here, is as I was coming here, I was gradually bringing things back and gradually bringing things back and creating more and more of a Thai world in America. And then finally, it just got to the point where the things that I needed to teach and the things that people needed to learn and the things that I needed to support my practice, I could only be in Thailand. There was kind of only one place for me. And that's when I kind of executed this plan that I kind of had for about uh, seven to 10 years 
it was the, always the plan to move here to Thailand. So I executed this plan to, to finally move here. So in 2014, in April, we bought our house. Then in November 2014, we came back. And then in March of 2015, that was the time we're like, all right, this is, we're here now. This, we, we sold everything in America. Or actually, we didn't really sell it. We gave everything away pretty much and cleared out everything in America and just came here. And we already had our house and everything. And it was probably one of the best decisions that I ever made in my entire life to, to come here. It's just resulted in so many benefits for my wife, my son, for me. It's been really, really wonderful. So hopefully you guys can find your Chiang Mai, Thailand somewhere. And that's why the Buddha didn't tell you exactly where to live. And I wouldn't tell you exactly where to live because Chiang Mai isn't for everybody. But if you can find these qualities that the Buddha is talking about, a place that it's easy to get the life-sustaining needs that you have, and it has a place where you can practice these teachings amongst a community of practitioners. And if it's a Buddhist community, great, wonderful, but it doesn't have to be. It can just be a very loving, wonderful Christian community or very loving, wonderful uh, Muslim community or anything like this because these teachings show up in lots of different communities and you can find that for yourself and then say, this is the place where I feel like I can be for a while. And then don't just snap your fingers and go because that's what we tend to do in Western cultures. We make these really quick, rapid decisions. And then once we're in the situation for six months or a year, we look back and we're like, oh, wow, this was not such a good decision, right? What they do here in Thailand is everything's really slow. You know, they really take their time at making decisions rather than this real quick, fast decision-making. Because when you make this real quick, fast decision-making, you can get yourself into a position where you've reacted without a lot of wisdom. And now it's difficult to kind of go back and revert back or otherwise change course. So what Thais do is they do things very gradually, very easily. They work together as a community. They really think through the decisions that they're going to make, all coming together as a community. And now, once they've got the decision that they've thought through really well, now they actually execute it. So the execution part is actually quite easy and quite smooth because you've spent a lot of time ensuring that it was the right decision. And by all that thinking and utilizing all that wisdom, when it's time to execute, you're actually going to execute much better because you've spent the time that you need to actually think about things and ensure that you're making a good decision. So if you are thinking of moving or it's something you're in the process of doing, just think through things and understand that each decision you make has consequences, not just where you live, but everything. If you go out and buy a new car, that's going to create a certain expense and a certain requirement for you to maintain that. Can your current income with you and your family support that? And is that going to put stress and pressure on your household? Choosing to have a child, if you decide to have a child or have a two, second child or a third child, that's going to cause a need for family to come together and talk about whether this is actually helpful for us and is this something that we need. Moving to a new job, this is also very consequential because you're going to end up changing all your coworkers, changing your company, maybe changing your field and what you, where you work. So you've got to take your time 
the mind with craving, this longing with a strong eagerness, it wants to make decisions rapid, quickly split, because it wants those pleasant feelings. It wants to hurry up and make those decisions and get to this new thing. It doesn't want to deal with this old stuff. It wants to just hurry up and get to the next thing. But that's the craving desire attachment, and that's why it's an unwholesome root, and it's going to lead to unwholesome decisions. So you, if you're making decisions through craving desire attachment, it's not going to turn out well because it's got that pollution or that unwholesome root, that poison of craving desire attachment. It's not going to turn out well. But if you can temper that, even you're not fully enlightened, you can temper that and you can just really take your time and make sure that you're making this decision for valid reasons, for important reasons, and you've thought it through and your family discussed it and it was an important thing for you to do, then you know you're making this decision out of necessity or need rather than out of craving, desire, attachment. Since we're talking about moving, I know that Manal moved recently. And when she was getting ready to sell her house and move to her next house, I was just curious. I asked her, you know, like, why did you decide to move? And she said, oh, well, I've got our parents that are going to be coming to live with us. And the house that we're in now doesn't exactly support our current family with our parents coming to now live with us that they're older. And we needed to move in order to support our family and have our parents come and live with us. Right. This is necessity. This is need. This isn't craving desire attachment. This is fulfilling a wholesome need that the family had is that our parents are aging. We would like to take care of them. Our current home doesn't support what we need. So let's find a new home. Right. So and I don't know how long she took to come to that decision and how much discussion she had with her family to do that. But I imagine, you know, she did what she needed to do. And you can see that that's going to have good, wholesome results for her. Whereas if, you know, you just wake up one morning and you're like, you know what, I just want to get out of here. I need to move. Like, let me, you know, break my lease and let me get out of here. You know, I'm sick of this place. This is going to lead to unwholesome results because you're breaking a lease you're leaving a landlord, you're, you're, you're dishonoring an agreement and breaking an agreement. This is where craving can oftentimes precipitate these unwholesome results because we're making decisions out of craving, desire, attachment, rather than slowing the mind down and thinking about, do I really need to make this decision? Why is it important? How is it going to benefit my life? And now that I'm choosing to make this decision, What do I need to do in order to ensure that this is a good decision and I'm headed in the right direction? And you're only going to get to these good, wholesome decisions by taking your time and a place to live, your job, you know, taking on new expenses like a new car or taking on children and deciding to have children or additional children or even deciding to have a life partner, what type of partner you're going to have and choosing that this person is now going to be close to you because this is a big decision. In Thailand, they don't just, you know, jump around from person to person to person. They really take their time in choosing their partner and this person that they're going to be with for a very long time, potentially. They really take their time to ensure that this is a person that's going to be kind of in line with their thinking 
And once they've done the dating, they will take their partner to each family. You know, they'll go around to the family and to friends and spend time with each other and see if there's kind of a, a synergy and a connection amongst each other and see how this all feels. And they'll kind of slowly bring these two families together, right? Because it's two families coming together and they'll slowly do that over time in various ways. So these are some of the major decisions that we make and oftentimes in the Western world, we don't really give it much thought. We're just in and out of jobs all the time. You know, we're in and out of living situations all the time. We'll buy a car at the drop of a dime, right? I remember driving down the street sometimes. I'm like, I'm tired of this car. Like two days later or a day later, I'm at a dealership buying a new car, right? Because the mind gets bored. It's lonely. It wants those pleasant feelings. What, what do I need right now? Oh, I need a new car. That's what will do it. Or, oh, I need to move to a new place, a new apartment, a new house. That, that's what'll do it, you know. Or, oh, I need to go buy this or buy that. Or I need to change my job. And we just jump around from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing looking for those pleasant feelings that we think are going to satisfy the mind. But it never really does because these pleasant feelings are impermanent. And we just keep jumping around from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing until we train our mind to do otherwise and we take our time and realize that these are consequential decisions that we're making, not that you have to mull things over every single moment and you need to you know, take five years to make a decision of where you're gonna live, not that you have to do that, but we gotta take our time in certain real consequential decisions and ensure that these major decisions that we're looking at, that we just make them in a way that's not based on the three unwholesome roots craving anger and ignorance and make sure that we inject as much of the three wholesome roots as possible generosity loving kindness and wisdom 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 we need to inject those into all of our decisions so that we'll have good wholesome results thanks david it's nice to know that if we find ourselves in a less than ideal situation that we have the teachings to help guide us, but then also that we can make decisions in our life to facilitate the cultivation of our minds. Yeah, it's, it's often here in Thailand where if a family or an individual or a couple is about to take on a certain decision, they will consult people. They will go to the elders of the village. They will go to their parents or their grandparents. They will also go to see the monks and they will take advice from all of these people. And then they will ultimately make the decision on their own because the way that advice is given here in Thailand is it's not, I've got the answers here. You've got to take my answers, take it, take it, take it, take it, do it my way, because that's kind of what I experienced in certain situations in Western culture. Like if you sought advice from somebody, it's almost like you feel forced or obligated to take their advice and do what they say. Where here in Thailand, it's well-practiced that you don't force your opinions and views on anyone whatsoever. You don't put your expectations on other people and you don't try to force people to do things. So you don't give unsolicited advice to people. You only give advice when asked. So if somebody comes to you and says, David, I would like your advice about this decision. I've got these three options. What are your thoughts? And I'll say, okay, sure, I'll give you my advice. Let me hear your options. And then they go through the three options. I never will tell them, do option one or do option two. Or do, I never say that because it's not my choice. 
what my role is as a Buddhist teacher, and you're welcome to come to me for advice and with all your other people that you seek advice from, my role is to provide you teachings from the Buddha that will help you to just reflect and think about what is the best choice for you. So if you came to me and said, David, I have these three living situations and I'm not sure which one I should move to. I can go to Texas and take this job or I can move to California and take this job or I can move to Spain and take this job. Which one do you think I should do? I wouldn't tell you which one to do. I would give you this teaching about the four scenarios and I would say, here's what I would suggest for you and you decide what's best because it's your gamma. It's your decisions and your results, action and results. Gamma is the results of your decision. So you can't, as a individual, have your teacher make all these different decisions for you because you're the only one that knows all the variables and you're the only one that knows what your mind needs in a given situation. It's your path to enlightenment and you've got to extinguish all this craving. So a good Buddhist teacher, in my view, a good Buddhist monk, in my view, a good person who's giving advice, in my view, would never tell somebody exactly what to do about these life decisions, but instead would just give you things to think about and then allow you the freedom to reflect on those teachings and then come to your own decision. That's the best thing that I think a teacher can do. And if any of you guys ever choose to come talk to me, and there's many people that have over the years, that's what I'll do, is I I will never tell you what to do in any situation. I will just give you guidance on some things to think about in terms of the Buddhist teachings, and then you make your own decision. And this is how monks and Buddhist teachers and Thai society play a role in helping and supporting the community because the community is supporting us, right? You guys make donations, you guys give gifts, you guys help me with certain things that I'm working on. So the gamma is you guys are supporting me, so therefore I'm supporting you. This is the natural law of gamma. And of course, there's lots of people out there that I teach and share teachings with that aren't able to support me. And that's fine, I'll still support them because I have enough people that do choose to support me here and there that it affords me the opportunity to help other people who aren't able to provide donations. So my ability to help people isn't contingent upon whether someone's able to provide donations or not. But just to let you know that this is the natural law of gamma at work is that by people being able to support Buddhist teachers and Buddhist monks, we are then responsible to provide support back to our community. So because of my deep appreciation and gratitude for all the support that I get, that's why I spend endless hours and days and weeks and months to put all these resources and classes together to ensure that I'm providing you guys the support that you need. And then people who are not able to support, they're always very polite and kind and friendly and respectful. I never ask anybody for a donation. I never ask anyone for money. I never ask anybody to do any particular thing to support me, right? Because part of the precepts are await what is given, awaiting what is given. This is part of the second precept. And if people have an interest to donate and things like this, then that's available for you. But 
for me, I'll never ask you to do that. I'll never require you. I'll never expect you to do it. And also, I share this because I'm really interested in ensuring you guys utilize me, right? Because I only have about 40 or 45 years, as far as I know, to live the rest of this life. And that's a good amount of time. But I would like to be sure that by the time I die, that there's nothing that I haven't said or haven't given. So I'm really interested in ensuring that every piece of wisdom that I have to share is in a book somewhere, on a podcast somewhere, in a video somewhere, has been shared somehow, somewhere, so that when I'm gone, that these teachings are available for you guys and lots of generations to come to ensure you guys have what you need. So use me, (laughs) use me, right? Utilize me. You don't have to be concerned about whether you're bothering David or you don't want to disturb me because this is what I do is I'm here to support all of you. So use me and reach out and I'm here to help you and I'll always provide you guidance and teachings, but I'll never provide you exactly what to do and it'll never come from my expectations. But this is one of the roles that we fulfill in a community of people. And our Western communities just don't have this kind of thing available to us. And it's something new that's coming into the Western world. So that's why I would like to share it so that you guys realize that it's not bothering me. This is what I do. This is my responsibility is to be here to support you guys as you need it. I think I can speak for the listeners, David, to say that it's very much appreciated. Okay, good. (laughs) That seems to be all the questions we have for today. Okay, so just adding on to that a little bit is, you know, in addition to teaching you the Buddhist teachings, I need to teach you a bit about the Buddhist culture, right? Because, yeah, there's these teachings that lead to enlightenment, but there's the whole aspect of how do we learn these teachings? You know, yeah, you have to ask questions. You have to seek guidance. You have to seek guidance from the teacher. This is kind of new to us. In the Western world, the priest or minister comes in, He's got a prepared talk. He delivers that talk. Everyone does whatever they're going to do, and then they go home, right? Buddhist culture is completely different. It's teacher. It's it's back and forth. It's guidance. It's asking questions. Buddhist culture is different, that the teacher is essentially a community leader, is a person who's in the community, functioning in the community, roaming around the community, understands the community, and the community can come to that Buddhist teacher or to that monk or that bikini and ask for advice and guidance. And that person should be able to give some nice guidance. And that person also seeks guidance from the elders and their grandparents and their parents and different people. And then they make, make a certain decision. This is Buddhist culture. Uh, and there's a lot of other things about Buddhist culture that you guys haven't been exposed to yet. But if you choose someday, once COVID's gone, to come here to Thailand, I will introduce you to that slowly and gradually here in Chiang Mai so that you can see how we can essentially bottle up these good, wholesome practices of Thailand and Buddhist culture and bring them more and more into the West. And it will really support our communities and really bring us out of this depression and sadness and hostility and anger and 
jealousy and envy and ego and arrogance and all these other things that we face on a daily basis in the Western world, the answers are right here in Thailand. They've held them here for many, many centuries and have been more than willing to share them, but the Thais just haven't had enough English to do that. And the Western community just hasn't had enough Thai. And there hasn't been this bridge to kind of bridge this world of Buddhist culture and Buddhist teachings with the Western world in a real significant way. And that's one of the roles that I feel like I can help provide, like I did with Thai massage and bridging over people from the Western world to the Thai teachings of Thai massage, Thai culture, and Buddhism. Now, just exclusively with Buddhist teachings, there's this bridge available for us to now start bringing these wonderful teachings that Thailand doesn't claim ownership to, and Thailand's more than willing to share them, but there just hasn't been the facility and the ability to do that. So now you guys have somebody that you can kind of reach into Thailand and bring these good, wholesome teachings into your family and into your life and develop a very peaceful, loving life based on some teachings that you learned when you were a child, when you were growing up, but also now in your adult life, learning some teachings from a place like Thailand. So thank you guys for joining and being interested in learning about these teachings because um, it's really wonderful life to be able to understand the Dhamma, the true teachings of the Buddha will lead to your liberation of mind. And I was reminded of a quote this week, even from Jesus Christ, that said, the truth will set you free, right? This was in the Bible. I don't know if you guys have heard this, right? The truth will set you free. What does this mean? You know, Jesus talked about this. It's in the Bible, but it's connected to Buddhist teachings, right? When you learn the truth of the Dhamma and you gain the wisdom, it will set you free. It sets the mind free. The mind will be liberated to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, right? They were all talking about the same thing. So rather than fight and squabble over who was right and who was wrong, all these original teachers had something to teach. But for me, the path of the Buddha is just so clear and so concise and so profound. So on Saturday, a few days from now, the 9th of January, we're going to be diving into the words of the Buddha. And you guys will really get exposure to what this wonderful man had to teach us all. And you can get closer and closer to that liberation, that freedom, that enlightened mind, because the truth will set you free. And these books from Buddha Wajana are the truth and they will set you free. So thank you so much for joining. I'll see you on either Saturday Sunday or next Wednesday. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.